Our responsive psalm this morning is Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. And also the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to their own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, we pray for your coming to judge all people with righteousness and justice. To the end that the world would be established in your son's everlasting rule. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we've been uh, going through a series of psalms this, uh, this past Advent season, I mean, why not look at another psalm while we're at it? See, a psalm reflection, it's not a, it's not a typical or usual Christmas thing to do, but, but every high festival of the church is always accompanied by a psalm, lectionary reading anyhow, so still quite appropriate that we linger in the psalms as we have been together fostering as a community the posture of looking back and looking forward, that is to say remembering God's first advent with us on Christmas and then longing for his second advent in the future. And much of the psalms really is about this posture of prophetic recollection and prophetic imagination, that is to look back and look forward. Now, before we turn to Psalm 96, as a way of preamble, the Hebrew Psalms, they were meant to be sung out loud as they were prayed out loud by first the priests and Levites and then by the people in response. And we've, in, in this church, have only begun to sing again. It's not even been a month since we've resumed. You may remember that uh, first Sunday of Advent back in late November. It was, it was quite emotional for some of us. As though it came as a shock to again hear an array of voices behind and around us in this space. It was all so familiar. It was so easy to get back into. Yet it was strangely magical and fresh, like every first snowfall of the year. So we all tried again to modulate our voices, trying to hit those notes, maintain melody and harmony with everyone else. May I describe... I describe all that, not just so that we may cherish anew our freedom and ability to sing, but that we may also partake of it afresh, just as we are able. Because singing is one of the few ways our humanity participates in and gives expression to the mysterious and to the sublime. See, singing is one of the most intimate and vulnerable ways we entrust our humanity to each other and most especially to God. I mean, that's why in both Judaism and Christianity, singing is considered, as they say, a sacrifice. It's an offering of praise, as it both unifies and engages all the aspects of who and what we are. We use our lungs, our diaphragms, our throats, tongues, and lips, using our hearts and minds together, straining, straining to make music unto God. It takes a lot out of us. It takes a lot out of our bodies to sing. And when we especially mean it, don't we also know singing's mysterious power, right? Perhaps you had that courage and you took that risk to perform that song you may have written in front of others for the first time. 
or those bedtime lullabies that we make up on the spot to the crying baby in our arms. Or that those dance parties that turn into these karaoke sessions all of a sudden when that song hits. Thousands of fans chanting in the stadium, the awe and rapture of choir and symphony inside a basilica. Now, earlier this spring, the uh, American comedian and commentator Stephen Colbert, he did this online interview with the Dr. Michio Kaku. He's a world-renowned Japanese-American theoretical physicist, and he co-founded the string field theory of physics, as it were. Now, in the interview, Michio started to explain this string field theory to Colbert, and that, as the name suggests, physical matter as it's theorizes, made up of strings that vibrate to distinct frequencies. And it is what Michio said, and I quote, The universe is a symphony of strings, and the mind of God is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. That's at least one current prevailing theory about the mysteries of the universe. And then we read in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John describes hearing the voice of Jesus like it was the sound of many rivers, many waters. It's describing like a never-ending flow of streams, like the streaming of notes from a symphony, from a song. And then Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, he picked up on this and he portrayed in his fantasy novel series, the chief creator god, Iluvatar, as though singing all of existence into being. Yet we read another portion in the Bible in Zephaniah. It says God himself is said to be singing over us, over people, like a groom serenading over his bride during their wedding day. Now all this to say as a preamble, it's just that whenever we sing, together as church, with faith, and we believe that we're giving our voices to praise God, we are, as it were, imitating God Himself, joining with the celestial beings, the terrifying cherubim and seraphim always singing, never ceasing at the throne of God as we offer up just a bit of our humanity to God in song, entrusting ourselves into that holy mystery, the sublimity of His divine life. And we've been going through the Psalms. In the Psalms, they give us these ancient bars, notes, and meters to sing alongside with as the symphony of the new creation continue to proceed and rush and stream out of the lips of Jesus Christ who is seated in heaven. Now with that, I invite us to turn to Psalm 96 in your Bibles or apps, or you can grab a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 550. Psalm 96. Now there are three sections to the psalm, which as a whole, the whole psalm celebrates God as the king of the universe, and he's coming. That's the whole theme. So the first section is about the king's glory. Second section is about the king's rights. And the third, it's about the king's coming. King's glory, king's rights, king's coming. Now, it's difficult to pin down a date, an exact date of when Psalm 96 was written. We at least know that it was likely sung almost to its entirety, 
quoted word for word as it appears in the book of 1 Chronicles in the 16th chapter. Now, it describes during the time of when King David finally defeated the Philistines, a group of people that have oppressed Israel through many decades. And in that time, David had just recaptured the Ark of the Covenant, which the Philistines stole from Israel at the time that King Saul was defeated. So having just gotten back the Ark, which was the visible presence of God depicted in gold and wood, David processed it up with an orchestral parade up into Jerusalem, to the summit of Mount Moriah. Moriah, we know, would later be renamed Zion, where the temple would be built, and then that's where the ark would then be placed for its final resting place. This was around 3,000 years ago. So imagine this, David, with his entourage of commanders and soldiers and Levites, alongside a throng of civilians in a huge parade, going up to Jerusalem, climbing up to the Mount Zion with priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and they're singing and dancing to Psalm 96. Now, this psalm would have made up now an enthronement song. It's an enthronement song, not for King David. It's actually for God, whose, again, visible presence in the Ark was physically carried up, as it were, on the steps to his resting place, his throne on Mount Zion, inside a tent, a tabernacle, that David had pitched for it, where God again was visibly ruling in the midst of his people as king. Now, all that I've described there, what had happened and all that, it was all new. It was all new to the ancient Jews. It was unprecedented for the Jewish people to have done this. They did this for the first time. And see, the thing is, none of what they did, that was, none of that was commanded. None of that was described in the laws of Moses. Seemed like they were all making it up as they went along under King David's direction. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with what they did. It was just all new. It was for the first time that they were doing this. It gives us kind of an insight as to what David may have been thinking, what the people would have been reviewing within themselves about what just happened. Who is this God? In light of their victory over their Philistines, in light of the ark again, climbing up to the Mount Zion to rule, God visibly ruling over the people on the top of a mountain. See, before then, there was no official Jewish festival or song about God's enthronement or about God as king. There was nothing about that because the Jewish people already understood that God is king. He's already enthroned in the universe as king of all. Because, again, all the festivals in their songs, they, they celebrated God's rescue, God's provision in the fields and harvest, God's forgiveness, atonement. There was nothing about God as king. And then this psalm comes out out of the newness of what they've experienced in that victory. Psalm 96 came out from their own hearts, inspired, as it were, anew. This is why we read in verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song. That was meant literally. This is a new song. As a psalm was possibly sung for the very first time during the ark's re-entry into Jerusalem, establishing visually God's supremacy over the gods of the Philistines. 
So this added a new dimension to the Jewish understanding of salvation. Salvation. Wherein God now was being received, though He was King of all, He is now being received into a once pagan citadel, into a once pagan realm in Jerusalem. It once belonged to the Jebusites, and then by the Philistines, and now it's recaptured, enveloped and overwhelmed by the presence of God in the ark. In other words, salvation has a new meaning here. God's kingship, though He's king over all, He's now being received. He's being acknowledged in realms that did not once accept Him or did not see Him as king. I never knew you, God, as king. And now, in this realm, God is king and everyone sees that. The ark is on the mountain. This is the added layer to salvation. This is what we read in verse 2. Tell of His salvation day by day. Declare His glory among the nations, His works among the peoples. That's so surprising. This is surprising for a Jewish military victory song, right? Because it has this international focus. But it's not so surprising. We know that Jewish understanding of salvation is meant for the whole world. So we could say that the lyrics to this psalm is not coming out of this Zionist nationalistic sentiment or this Jewish exceptionalism. It's not. It's a Jewish prayer for the whole world to receive and acknowledge God as King. The reason given for us in verse 5, it's not because Israel or the Jewish religion is better than the rest, no. It's because first, in verse 5, the gods of the nations are worthless. And second, God is the creator. He made everything. In summary, God is real. This is what the psalm is saying. God is real and the other gods are not. Right? The combined phrase, worthless idols, that's just one word in Hebrew. It means nothings, nuns, immaterials. Because in the end, these so-called gods of the nations of the world, they don't exist. They don't have power. They don't have influence in the end. And the idols and stone and wood that were made to represent these gods, these nothings, they have no real value. They're trinkets. They don't have weight to them. They They have no real glory in them. And contrast that to God because He made everything else. He has real glory, inherent glory and weight and substance. He is real. God is the creator of creation. This is our first section now at the psalm establishes God's glory as seen in this new meaning of salvation and in creation, having made everything. The idols are worthless. We move on to the second section, the king's rights, in verses 7 to 9. Now this section starts with a three-part command, to ascribe to God what He deserves. See, this is a repeat of how the first section also began. In verses 1 to 2, it's a three-part, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. Then here it repeats in another three-part, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. What is it that we're being summoned to ascribe or give to God? Glory. Glory and strength. Now that's confusing, right? See, the the first section, the psalm already establishes that God already has glory. He has glory already. 
from salvation and creation, why are we to give God more glory, right? It's, it's not as though God was running low on glory. He just needs a top-up once in a while. It's not what's happening here. I mean, so if it's not out of need, is God wanting more than what he already has? Like he's some kind of glory hound. I mean, that's not what's happening either. The psalm gives us at least two reasons. First, it's what God deserves, whether or not he needs or wants it. For example, it's perfectly reasonable and appropriate to applaud and um, recognize someone who performed or served with excellence. And it really doesn't matter in the end whether or not they needed or wanted that. That's not for us to decide. But for God, at, at least since he created everything, and he's continuing to save what he created, it's, he deserves it. He deserves the glory, and it's his right regardless whether he's needing it or wanting it. That's not the question. But the second reason, I think this is the most important one, we give what God deserves because it's only good for us in the sense that we are actually missing out on what heavens and the universe are constantly doing every single moment where it appears to be so dumb and foolish to do anything but. It's like you're being bored asleep at the courtside seat at an NBA finals game. Or you're, you have your phone out, you're playing Candy Crush while you're, you're on this helicopter tour over the Grand Canyon. Just so weird and dumb to do that while everything else is happening around you. That requires focus, that requires attention, that requires response, your full humanity to engage. It's so dumb not to do that. It's only good for us to participate in what everyone and everything else is doing to God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It only makes sense to give what he deserves. It's only good for us. It's the king's right. Finally, the third section. The king's coming. Verses 10 to 13. Now, the immediate context of this section was God's coming to judge the Philistines. That is, he judged the gods of the Philistines and showed them to be worthless, to be nothings, to be nuns. But there's a prophetic imagination to the psalm that looks forward to when God will come to judge not the political oppressors of his people, of Israel, but he will come to judge the entire world and everyone who lives in it. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This is an end times metaphor for when the the seas and the oceans will become so calm, as it were, that they appear to not move at all, like some sheet of glass, unmoved. Because in Jewish imagery, the nations of the world, they're depicted as foaming, upturning, unhinged, as it were, like the seas and the oceans, so random, uncontrolled, violent. But when God comes again, He will come to calm the uproar of the peoples, and establish, bolt it down, secure it, that the world would no longer be moved. It cannot shake anymore. It's secure. There is peace. 
So that happens, but something else radical happens here that none of us would ever imagine this. The inanimate world becomes reanimated in verses 11 to 12. So here again, we see a three-part thing. Actually, it's a four-part repetition. Let so-and-so do this, right? Sing to the Lord three times, ascribe to the Lord three times, and then here is another three-part Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let the field exult. The trees will start singing. You see, this is the moment then when God's creation and God's salvation, they meet again in creation fully alive because creation is fully saved. Verse 13 is because God has finally come. His salvation has come in its final form to judge creation. This is when God will put creation back together, or as sometimes we would put it, put Humpty Dumpty back together again when all the king's people could not. Only God can do this. He's come to save creation completely from sin and then releases it, unleashes it, lets it go as it were for how it was always meant to be. And that's as though that the trees, the, the rivers, the mountains, the skies, the animals were originally meant to talk. They were originally meant to sing and shout and give praise to God. And sin took the, his, their voices away. This might not mean literally, but it's poetic language for the unimaginable possibilities of creation when it's totally saved. This is what will happen. But the king is coming. So in the psalm, to recap, this is about the king's glory, king's rights, the king's coming. So I've gone on and on, but what does this psalm have to do with Christmas? That's what we're celebrating this morning. What does this have to do with Christmas? See, a bit over 300 years ago, the, uh, the English hymn writer Isaac Watts, he published his anthology of of hymns called the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. It was uh, Watts's most ambitious work and his largest contribution towards congregational singing. We still sing a lot of his hymns today. And as the title suggests, Watts paraphrased every single one of the Hebrew Psalms in English rhyme and meter and related each one of them to the New Testament. That's what he did. It's a really huge work. And in the anthology under Psalm 98, Watts wrote for it this subtitle, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And it starts off with these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Now, despite the hymn being under Psalm 98, Watts actually borrowed the exact wording from Psalm 96, because he made the connection between the prophetic imagination of heaven and nature singing to the news of the coming of God, the King, on Christmas. And we know that this, psalm, this hymn has become and is today still one of the best-known and well-sung carols for more than three centuries. Because today, on Christmas Day, the King of the universe did not come inside a golden wooden box of the ark being carried by priests up into Jerusalem. The king of the universe came inside the ark of a virgin's womb 
as Mary carries the glory of God in her up to the little town of David's city to be born and laid inside a tabernacle in a manger as his tent. He has the Luke as Luke the evangelist uh, described it in the gospel, heaven, at this time, heaven and nature began to sing, started to be reanimated. They started becoming alive. They were, they were jostled, as it were. Something's happening to creation. Something's happening here, and they're starting to sing. It was around the time when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, hearing about her miraculous pregnancy, and she has her own news to share as she has her own child of promise in her. And as soon as the two meet, the fetus inside Elizabeth leapt upon hearing Mary's voice. And as it were, John inside her started dancing to music, to song. Then Mary and Elizabeth followed suit together, bursting into prophecy, into song and music. Singing about the coming of the king who will save and judge the world. My soul magnifies the Lord. Heaven and nature are singing and then much later, the angel broke the news to some shepherds at fields in the night. That night sky turned into noonday, and all of heaven showed up to sing the chorus, glory to God in the highest. Heaven and nature are singing. David sang about his king's glory, seen in salvation and creation. That we're now singing about the king's glory in his Incarnation, God's glory in the flesh of Christ, where salvation and creation meet. The incarnation. And then David sang again and invited us to ascribe and give to God his rights. But then God, in Jesus, he gave up his rights. That's what he did. He did not count equality with God. But he took on himself the body of a slave that he could finally share his rights, his glory to all of creation, to us. Finally, David sang about this vision that he did not know what he was talking about, but he dreamt of it, he hoped for it, a vision of heaven and earth singing at the king's coming. And we now, the church, we are today singing in these last days for the reunion of earth and heaven. Creation reanimated with songs of freedom. All the realms invisible, invisible, singing to Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, for He comes to make all things new. Heaven and nature are singing, and they are still singing. They are still singing around you, behind you, underneath you. Question is, do you hear? Do you hear them sing? Can you hear them sing? And if so, why not join alongside with them? Everything else is doing it, everyone else is doing it. Let us join with our voices to sing to the Lord a new song. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.